You're listening to the podcast of Christ Walk Church in Fernandina Beach, Florida, where we exist to inspire people to follow Jesus every day. We hope that these messages encourage and challenge you to live for something more. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can find us online at thechristwalk.com. Thanks again for listening. Now here's today's message. What's up, Christ Walk? How's everybody doing today? Everybody doing good? Y'all are looking good. Thanks for braving the the Shrimp Fest weekend um, to be out here and uh, yeah. But if you got a Bible, you got a smart device, um, I'd love for you to turn with me or swipe with me this morning to the Old Testament, actually the very first book of the Old Testament. So right there at the beginning of your Bible, the book of Genesis. Genesis means beginning, and um, they're not trying to trick anybody. That's why they put it at the beginning. And so we're going to be there, uh, Genesis chapter 2, and then we'll spill over into Genesis chapter 3, so you can kind of keep a finger there. We'll land there in just a minute. Um, I recently came across a story about an article from the Washington Post in 1901. A couple of you might have been around then. Um, entitled, I'm not pointing fingers. I'm not pointing fingers. Um, th- this article was entitled, Men Met in the Hotel Lobbies. Apparently, uh, the titles of newspaper articles are very different back in 1901. Um, In this article, a man by the name of George D. Aldrich recalled a story about Dr. Arthur Conan Doyle, who some of you may recognize as the creator of the character Sherlock Holmes. And as this story goes, uh, Dr. Doyle was once at a dinner party where the guests began discussing the daily discoveries made to the detriment of people occupying high stations in life and enjoying the confidence of the, uh, the business world. Dr. Doyle said that it had always been his opinion that there was a skeleton in the closet of every man who had reached the age of 40. And so this led to a lot of discussion. And some of the guests uh, were resentful towards the idea that there was no one who had not something in his past that was better off left concealed. And so as a result of this controversy, Doyle uh, suggested that um, his views upon skeletons in the closet be put to the test. And so the diners selected a man of their acquaintance whom uh, everyone only knew as an upright Christian gentleman whose word was accepted as quickly as his bond and who stood with the highest of esteem in every single respect. And so Doyle says, we wrote a telegram saying, all has been discovered, flee at once, and sent it to this pillar of their society. And um, Dr. Doyle says he disappeared the next day and has never been heard of since. Um, Today we are in part two of a series called Baggage Claim, where we're taking a look at some of the things that you and I tend to carry that weigh us down, that distort our true identity in Christ and keep us from living the life that he's called us to live, that they hold us back from becoming who God has called us to be. And our theme verse for this particular series comes to us out of Hebrews 12.1, and it's this right here. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses, 
to the life of faith. Let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. And let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us. So if we're going to strip off every weight that slows us down, there's some stuff that you and I, that we've been carrying for some time, that if we're going to uh, embrace and, and step into the future that God has called us to, we're going to have to let some stuff go in the process so that we can make the jump there. But what I've discovered is that a lot of times you and I, we walk through life kind of feeling like the girl who once made this observation right here. She says, me getting dressed puts on the same yoga pants for the eighth day in a row. (laughs) Me packing for vacation, I don't have enough room for this third ball gown, so I'm probably going to have to check another bag, right? Like, we're always trying to amass this stuff and carry it, keep, up, keep it with us that, that we really don't need. That when we're, when we're trying to, to move forward, we, we look around and we're like, eh, I can't let go of this. I've got to carry it with me. I, I've got to keep it with me. But the idea behind this series is, is simply this. That you and I, we've got to pack for the destination to which we are headed. And in order for us to arrive at that destination the most, in the most effective and efficient way possible, there's some things that you and I are going to have to lay down. There's some stuff that we're holding on to now that doesn't need to make the trip with us. And in fact, if we continue to hold on to those things, not only is it going to delay our arrival to our destination, it could get us off course altogether. And whereas last week we talked about regret, If you missed that message, I would encourage you to go back to our podcast, our YouTube channel, and and watch or listen. Um, Be sure to check that out. Uh, We talked about regret last week, but today I want to spend the next few minutes talking about shame. I want to spend the next few minutes talking about shame. And, And perhaps right now you're thinking, wait a minute, regret, shame, like aren't those two the same thing? And you're mostly right. Yeah, like regret and shame are very, very similar. And there's definitely some overlap. But, but despite the fact that they overlap, that they touch, that they kind of, it's, that they play off of the same kinds of, of emotions and they're, they're similar baggage, there's, there's one major difference. And it's this right here. Regret says what I did was bad. But shame says I am bad because of what I did. You see the difference? Regret is the thing is bad, but shame takes on a persona of itself. It says that I am bad because of what I have done. And and let let me just lay it on the line here. Shame is way more than like eating a whole package of Oreos in one sitting or having front row tickets to a Nickelback concert. Like shame is way, some of y'all will get that on the drive home. Um, shame is way, way bigger than that. Brene Brown actually defines shame this way. She says, shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Shame is so dangerous because it literally takes over our identity. And we become the thing of our shame. We become that baggage that we carry. It's kind of like Hester Prynne in The Scarlet Letter. 
No longer was she identified as Hester. She was identified as the adulterer, and she had to wear that big red A on her dress that everybody she came in contact with would have known what she had done before they even knew her name. And no doubt, just like in the story of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, we all have skeletons in our closet, even the most godly among us. Even your pastor has a few hundred thousand in his closet. Those things from our past that we've used to label and define ourselves, those things that that. The irony, of, the, the irony is, is that, that even though we've used them to, to label and define ourselves, we pray that nobody will ever come to realize that they are there. Maybe, maybe in, in your closet, maybe in your suitcase, the things that, that you're carrying, maybe it's, it's a past filled with adultery or abuse, abortion, addiction, Something else really clever that starts with the letter A. Whatever that stuff is, you know that it's there. And you pray that no one else around you is ever going to find out. That's shame. And, and, and the devil, what he does with that stuff is, is he holds it over our head. And the Bible says that he is the accuser. And what he does is, is he dangles that over our heads and he accuses us of that stuff every single day. And the longer we carry that stuff, the heavier and heavier and heavier it gets. And we've convinced ourselves along the way that we're carrying it alone. But that's simply not the case. We don't carry that alone today. And if you're taking notes, maybe you want to write this down. Um, the big idea for today's message is simply this. If you won't let go of your past, you can't take hold of your future. If you won't let go of your past, you can't take hold of your future. And so with that said, let's open up to Genesis chapter 2. We're going to read uh, verse 25, the last verse in that chapter, and then spill over into chapter 3. Um, Genesis chapter 2, verse 25. It says this, it says, Now the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame, and everybody said, Amen. Amen. The man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. Skipping over into uh, chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Now the serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. Continuing on to verse 4. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. 
The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious. And she wanted the wisdom that it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it too. And watch this. At that moment, their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. Continuing on in verse 8. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Then the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Who told you that you were naked? The Lord God asked. Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? Continuing on in verse 12, the man replied, it was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit and I ate it. And then the Lord God asked the woman, what have you done? The serpent deceived me, she replied. That's why I ate it. Now, this passage right here, it is the turning point in the entire Bible. We just get three chapters into the whole thing, and it all changes. That, that this beautiful, perfect, incredible creation that, that God has brought about, and he, he's, given, he's given Adam and Eve two instructions. He says, be fruitful and multiply, don't eat this fruit. Those are the two things. And they're living like this incredible life. All of their needs are taken care of. But then they disobey his word. And at that moment, everything shifts. Because now God's creation that he said is, is good. And when he created man, is, is very good because of sin. There's separation has been created. And, and now, there's, now there's flaws. And so, so in order for man to get back to God, there's got to be something to put in place for redemption. And so because Adam and Eve messed it up for all of us for the rest of time, the remainder of the Bible, the, all of the, you know, nearly um, the, the rest of, of the whole Bible itself is, is the story of God's redemption for his creation. So this serves as, as the turning point of scripture. And, and in, in chapter 2, verse 25, it says that the man and the woman, they were together in the garden and they were naked and they felt no shame. Yet in verse uh, 7 of chapter 3, all of a sudden they realize that they are naked and they're ashamed of it. What happened? In the, in the, the, the course of, of six verses, seven verses there, what took place? Well, it's, it's sin. It's sin. And, and the devil is still doing these same things to us. We, we've talked to, uh, about this before. His, his method hasn't changed in thousands and thousands of years. He's still coming to us and tempting us with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. The same way that he tempted Eve back in the garden all those thousands of years ago, it's the same way that he, that he tempts us and attacks us and, and pulls us into sin even today. And, and it's how he gets us to fall for it. And, and when we do sin, the end result, what it, what it causes, what it brings about is, first and foremost, it's, it's shame. Sin always brings forth shame because it separates us from God. And it, it allows us to see who we are in light of who 
he is. That separation, it, it, it shows us that, that we're different. And we start to compare and we're like, wait a minute, something is not right with me. And so that brings on shame. And what shame does is shame results in a distortion of our identity as God's creation. Because prior to sin, Adam and Eve, they were united with one another. They were united with God and everything was perfect the way that God had designed for it to be. But when sin comes into play, now there's a separation and and we view ourselves under the, the cloak of, the shadow of, the stigma and the stain of sin. And so we can't see ourselves for how God created us. So it presents this distorted view of, of our identity as his creation. And so if you're taking notes, maybe you want to write this down. The, the fruit of shame is always these three things, as illustrated in Genesis chapter 3. The fruit of shame is, number one, fear. Fear. We read that Adam told the Lord, he says, I was afraid because I was naked. See, fear is, is ultimately, in this case, it's, it's driven by a distorted view of God's word or a distorted view of his, his voice toward us. See, before they sinned, Adam and Eve were naked, but they didn't realize it. But after they sinned, they realized that they were naked and their vulnerability caused them to also recognize that they were separated from God as a result of their disobedience to his commands, to his word, to his voice that had been spoken to them. Before they sinned, Adam and Eve would have welcomed and embraced the word, the voice of the Lord. But after they sinned, they were now afraid of it. God's word is holy. And the reason that they were now afraid of it is because it pointed out their sin and as a result, their inability to live up to Christ's example. And so once we step into sin, we realize that we are on the downhill slope headed toward death and we get afraid really quick because we've done something that has separated us from our heavenly father. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 3, 23. He says, Everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. There is none among us who are not living in sin, who are not a sinner because of what happened all the way back in the Garden of Eden in this interchange between Adam and Eve and God and the serpent and this fruit, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. All of us, as a result, are sinners. And so first off, whenever we sin, it brings on shame. And the fruit of shame is, number one, fear. Number two, the second fruit of shame is hiding. It's hiding. It says, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. This hiding is driven by a distorted view of God's presence. See, before they sinned, they would have longed for God's presence. They couldn't wait until the cool breezes of the evening would blow where God would come down from his holy mountain and, and he, would, he would commune with them there in the garden. They would walk and they would talk and they would admire the creation that was around them and just be enveloped in his presence each and every day. But after they sinned, 
They hid from his presence. I love what Billy Sunday says. He says this, sinners can't find God for the same reason criminals can't find policemen. They aren't looking. And see, that's what happens when we get caught up in sin and it separates us from God. Then, then shame comes in and, and no longer do we, do we look for the presence of God. Instead, we try to hide from it. We try to get away from it because whenever we come back into his presence, we realize how depraved and wicked that we are in comparison with him and that we'll never stack up. And so we hide as a result. Psalm 139 verses 1 through 7, it says, O Lord, you have examined my heart and know everything about me. You know when I sit down or stand up, you know my thoughts even when I'm far away. You see me when I travel and when I rest at home. You know everything I do. You know what I'm going to say even before I say it, Lord. You go before me and follow me. You place your hand of blessing on my head. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too great for me to understand. In verse 7, I can never escape from your spirit. I can never get away from your presence. True? Then why do we try to hide? Why do we pretend like we can actually get away from God? Like he's not going to find out what we've done. Right? Why do we do that? I find it interesting that in this moment that, that, that the scriptures say that they hid from God among the trees. All of a sudden, this beautiful creation that God's placed them in the midst of has now become a tool of, of separation from man and God. They, they get behind the tree and they say, maybe if we're here, we can stay separated and he won't see us. But yet we fast forward all the way to the New Testament and, and watch how things come full circle. God sends his son Jesus to go and die on a tree so that whereas in the Garden of Eden, we hid ourselves from the Lord behind a tree. At Calvary, it was a tree that invited us to come out of hiding so that we would no longer have to be separated from God. So the, the fruit that is born out of shame is first fear, it's hiding, and then finally it's blame. Fear, hiding, and blame. We read, have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? This is the Lord asking Adam. And the man replied, it was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit and I ate it. And then the Lord God asked the woman, what have you done? And she says, the serpent deceived me and that's why I ate it. See, blame is driven by a distorted view of God's commandments his guidelines, and his instructions. Before they sinned, Adam and Eve were unified by God's instructions. But afterward, they were divided by God's instructions because they didn't obey them. And now in this moment, Adam is viewing God's very good gift to him, this woman, this helper, this thing that would complete him on this earth. Eve, he's viewing her as the source of his troubles. And when God says, what have you done? He says, it's actually God what you did because you gave this woman to me and she messed it up for all of us. So it's really not even her fault, it's your fault because you made her in the first place, right? And that's, that's like how we, how we get with God. 
and we try to like rationalize and justify the way that we've been living and, and everything that we do, it's trying to push blame off of us onto someone else so that we cannot be found guilty. But the truth is, you and I, we've got two choices when it comes to our sin. We have two choices, two and two alone. We can either conceal it, like that zit on picture day, you know, you wake up and you're like, oh, got to cover that up. Or we can confess it. We either conceal it or confess it. And either way, it's going to be found out. So we might as well just confess it. See, in their shame, Adam and Eve, they, they made the wrong choice. They tried to conceal their sin rather than confess it, which ultimately brought about death. First and foremost, it was spiritual death through separation from God. And then ultimately, it's what led to physical death. James, the brother of Jesus, talks about this in the New Testament. James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, he writes this. He says, temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions. And watch what happens. When sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. Shame allows sin to grow because shame says, I don't want my sins to come to light. I'm just going to keep them over here in the dark place so that nobody will find out about them. I'm not going to let go. I'm going to tuck them away over here. And while they're over here in the background, it's like they just, they, they keep just festering and growing and getting bigger and bigger and bigger until one day that closet door comes bursting open. You know, it's like when you, you, you tell the kids you need to clean up this mess and everything and they find out that mom's right around the corner on their way home and they got to they gotta really quick, like, get all the mess cleaned up and so they just shove it into the closet and then the next time you go and you open the door and it all comes flying out at you, that's how it happens. Shame allows that sin to grow and, and shame, as the 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 Long, uh, the length of time that it remains there, it, it will cause us to listen to a different voice other than God's. Shame is that, it's that voice right over here. It's just constantly whispering. It's constantly telling us these different things. And, and that voice will tell us, the voice of shame will whisper in our ear that we're useless because of what we've done. That voice will whisper in our ear that, that we are unworthy because of what we've done. That voice and it will get louder and louder and louder as long as we allow that to stay there and to, to grow and to fester. It will, it will tell us that we are unlovable because of what we have done. That voice will tell us that we're unforgivable because of what we have done. The good news for us this morning is that even in our shame, God comes to us just like he came to Adam and Eve. He comes and he searches for us and he calls out to us so that we can once again be in his presence. See, sin may separate us from God, but he takes the initiative in seeking us out to restore the relationship. In the Garden of Eden, he sacrificed an animal so that Adam and Eve could have earthly robes to cover their bodies. And at the cross of Calvary, he sacrificed his son so that we could have eternal righteousness to cover our sin. 
even then, all the way in the very beginning, God still had a plan for redemption. Here's his plan, Genesis 3, 14 through 15. It says, then the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all animals, domestic and wild. You will crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live. And I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Her offspring right there. Notice he didn't talk about Adam's offspring. It was through the woman. It's a direct reference to the virgin birth. And it points us to the fulfillment of Jesus Christ in the New Testament, who through the nails that were going to pierce his flesh, as his heel would be struck, that, that he, would, he would pronounce the death blow to the head of the serpent, the devil, once and for all. Even then, at the very beginning, God had a plan for how it was all going to unfold thousands and thousands of years later. That though we messed it up, he had already made the way for us to be redeemed and reconciled to him. And so we fast forward to the New Testament and um, John chapter 8. If you want to flip there, you can. I'm just going to kind of highlight this story and maybe read a couple verses out of it. But we see this in action. We come on this scene and Jesus is teaching um, at the temple and a crowd is gathering and um, he's, he's, he's there teaching and, and the Pharisees, they've, uh, they're the, the religious elite of the day and they don't like Jesus at all whatsoever and they're constantly at every turn, they're trying to assault him with the law of Moses Back from the, New Te or the Old Testament, they're, they're trying to, to assault him with that to get him to kind of stumble over himself and, and entrap himself between a rock and a hard place when it comes to the law. And so Jesus is there at the temple this day, and he's teaching, and the Pharisees just break up in the midst. It would be like if someone walked in the back door right now and like stormed up to the front towards the stage... The Pharisees just break in in the middle of Jesus' teaching and they've got this woman by the arm and they're carrying her and they kind of throw her down um, in front of Jesus and in front of the crowd that had gathered and they make this big spectacle and they're pointing a finger and they, they very loudly and everything, they're, they're pointing the finger at her, they're accusing her and they're saying, hey, this woman... Notice she's not called by her name, she's called by her sin. This woman was caught in the act of adultery. And according to Jewish law, she's supposed to be stoned to death. Now, according to Jewish law, both her and the man that she would have been with should have been stoned to death. But notice they let him go free, it's just this woman that they've brought because they're not after justice, they're after Jesus. They're, after, they're trying to get him to, to mess up and everything. And, and so all of a sudden, this, this crowd of people and, and is circled around this woman, and they're all starting to pick up their stones. And so Jesus, in this moment, he doesn't make eye contact with the woman. He doesn't even look her way. Instead, it says that he stoops down and begins to draw in the dirt with his finger 
a very peculiar thing. We, we never see this is the only time throughout um, all of the scripture, even though he is the word, and so many words in addition to the Bible have been written about him, this is the one time that we see Jesus writing. We don't know what he wrote. There's many speculations as to what he's scribbling there in the dirt. He draws in the dirt, and eventually he says, acknowledging that they're right, that in accordance with Jewish law, this woman should be stoned to death. He says what you and I, many of us know, he who is without sin can cast the first stone. And so one by one, as they stand there, they begin to drop their stones and walk away. And then Jesus gets back down in the dirt with this woman, picks her up, and in verse 10, it says, he stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. See, this woman's sin and the resulting shame was on full display for everyone to see. And where the Pharisees wanted to place their focus on her, Jesus shifted and placed the focus back on them. Rather than hurling insults or stones at this woman because of the filth of her sin, Jesus got down in the dirt with her. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying and don't read into this what's not there. This passage does not mean that Jesus is easy on sin or that he operated in contradiction to Jewish law because this sin demanded that the penalty of death be paid. The Pharisees were correct about that. The law demanded that death be paid for the penalty. But for Jesus to forgive this woman that day, it meant that one day he was going to have to die in her place. Warren Wearsby says this. He says, forgiveness is free, but it is not cheap. Forgiveness is free, but it is not cheap. There's a cost associated with our sin and our guilt and our shame. And that cost was Jesus' life. Where the law said guilty, though, Jesus said grace. Where the law said we were guilty, Jesus said, nope, I'm going to cover that with my grace. And in the midst of our shame, in the filth of our sin, Jesus isn't hurling insults and stones. Instead, he's getting down in the dirt with us, picking us up and saying, hey, I'm not condemning you either. Go and sin no more. And the question would be that since we have access to such wonderful grace through our Heavenly Father like this, does it mean that it doesn't matter how we live, that, that we can just do whatever we want to since God's grace is so abundant and available? And Paul writes in, in Romans 6, 1 through 2, he says, well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Of course not. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? See, Jesus, he didn't define the woman by her sin. But he did tell her, 
from this point on, go and sin no more. And she was one of the first to experience the truth of what Paul wrote about in 2 Corinthians 5.17 when he says, this means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone and the new life has begun. In Romans 8.1, so now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. We don't have to continue to carry our shame with us because when we are in Christ, we are made new and that shame is just part of our past, but it no longer has to be held over our head. It's no longer who we are because we've been made new in Jesus Christ. And so really quickly, I just wanna give you some kind of rapid fire points and some scriptures that you can hold on to when no doubt the shame of your past is going to rear its ugly head. How do we get over our shame? How do we overcome it in the long run of our life? For starters, we need to trust the Lord with our past. Trust the Lord with our past. 1 Peter 2, 6. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Secondly, we need to hope in the Lord for your future. Hope in the Lord for our future. Psalm 25, 3. No one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame. Third, we choose joy over sorrow. We choose joy over sorrow. Psalm 34, 5. Those who look to him for help will be radiant with joy. No shadow of shame will darken their faces. Fourth, we take refuge in the Lord. Take refuge in the Lord. Psalm 71, 1. In you, Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be put to shame. Fifth, we abandon sinful actions. Psalm 119, 39 through 40. Help me abandon my shameful ways, for your regulations are good. I long to obey your commandments. And finally, we don't be afraid. We don't be afraid. Isaiah 54, 4. Fear not, you will no longer live in shame. Don't be afraid. There is no more disgrace for you. You will no longer remember the shame of your youth. Here's the truth that I need somebody to hear this morning. You are not what you have done. You are who God says you are. You're not what you've done. You are what God says you are. And in that point, at your lowest point, he got down in the dirt with you. And he picked you up and dusted you off and said, go and sin no more. The hope that we have comes to us out of Romans chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. It says, yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone. But Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and a new life for everyone. Because one person disobeyed God, many became sinners. But because one other person obeyed God, many will be made righteous. I love this quote from Jake Allstadt, who said, Jesus opened your closet, stole every skeleton you own, and carried them to his death. Your skeletons no longer hang in your closet. They hang by nails on a wooden cross. 
It's not your job to deal with your sins. Jesus has already shed his blood and died for them. Your skeletons don't belong to you anymore. They belong to Jesus. He stole them and you can't have them back. It makes me think of the monkey trap. A monkey trap is pretty simple. It's a coconut. It's hollowed out small hole in the side of it and those that are catching the monkeys they will fill it full of peanuts or some other goodie like that and the monkey will come along and it's very easy for him to slide his hand through the hole in the opening of that coconut to take hold of the peanuts or whatever goodie is on the inside of that but when he balls up his fist full of those peanuts it's no longer small enough to slide back out of that hole and so it's pretty easy to catch a monkey you don't even have to kill it. You don't have to do anything inhumane or whatever. And the, the trappers, they can come along and just grab them right there out of the tree because the monkey will just continue to hold on to the peanuts inside of that coconut and not let go. For a lot of us, we're caught in the same kind of trap with our past. We just refuse to, to let go of that guilt and that shame, that stuff from yesteryear that plagues us and hangs over our head every day. The, the truth is, is that, that we should be free, and we can be free, but in order for that to happen, we just got to let go. We just got to let go. Somebody in this room, somebody watching online today, you need to hear me. Stop holding on to that stuff. Stop holding on to that stuff. Because what happens is, is when we hold on to our past, ultimately what we're saying is that the power of our past is greater than the power of the cross. But Micah 7.19 says, Once again, you will have compassion on us. You will trample our sins under your feet and throw them into the depths of the ocean. Because of the cross, our sins are at the bottom of the sea of forgetfulness. And Jesus has posted a sign that says, no fishing. We're supposed to let that stuff go. The Bible says in, in Psalm 103, 12, it says that he has removed our sins as far from us as the east is from the west. Because of the cross, our life doesn't have to be a story about our failure. It can be a story about God's faithfulness instead. Because of the cross, our lives do not have to be a story about our defeat. It can be about God's victory instead. If you won't let go of your past, you will never be able to take hold of your future. It's as simple as that. For somebody here today, Somebody watching online this morning, maybe the first step into taking hold of your future and letting go of your past is to enter into a covenant relationship with your heavenly father through Jesus Christ. If that's you here this morning, I want to invite you to just pray this simple prayer with me. You'd say, Pastor Blake, I'm, I'm ready to put all of that junk from the way that I've lived up until this point, I, I'm tired of that stuff hanging over my head. I want to be forgiven. I want to be set free of that. I don't want to carry it any longer into my future. But instead, I want to step across the line this morning into the future that God has for me through a right relationship with him through his son, Jesus. If that's you, let's pray this simple prayer together. Can we pray? Heavenly Father, 
I admit that I'm a sinner and that I'm lost without you. I believe that Jesus died in my place, making a way for us to have a relationship. Today, I choose to follow Jesus and his way for the rest of my life. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Christ Walk Church podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on future episodes. To find out more information about Christ Walk Church, including our service times, how to connect with us on social media, and the ministry opportunities we have for you and your family, simply visit our website at thechristwalk.com. Thanks again for listening, and don't forget, because of Jesus, the best is yet to come.